When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hello, welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, on the line with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey, Aaron. Aaron Lammer, how are you, sir? I am very well. Rarely do I get to do a, a uh, episode of the show so timely uh, on, the, on the news timeline as this week. Um, I got a chance to talk to Josh Yaffa, who I've had on the program a few years ago, I want to say. He covers Russia for The New Yorker and has been in Ukraine. Uh, when I actually got a hold of him, he had um, departed Ukraine for Warsaw, where he had gone to put together a story, which I think should be coming out around the same time as this show in print. It's already online on The New Yorker's website, but he's written quite a bit uh, from Kiev and uh, other parts of Ukraine over the last few weeks. And I just wanted to talk to him about his experiences. Good guest. Good guest, Aaron. Yeah, I'm glad you did this one, man. And uh, I'm I'm so interested to hear just like how he processes this stuff this quickly. It seems almost impossible to me. Our show is brought to you in partnership with Vox, who help us make it. Thanks to them. And now here's Aaron with Joshua Yaffa. We've got on the line Josh Yaffa live from, uh, I actually do not know where you are. Where are you right now? As of yesterday, I'm in Warsaw, Poland. Okay. When I booked this interview, you were in Kiev and I think you were about to leave for, I have no idea how to pronounce the name, Lviv, Lviv? Lviv in Western Ukraine. Lviv. Tell me about the journey from Kiev to where you are now. Sure. So I left Kiev five days ago, something like that. I've, I've sort of lost track of time. But I did it relatively easily compared to certainly what a lot of Ukrainians have gone through in recent weeks, and even some fellow foreign correspondent colleagues. I went by car. I got lucky with a local driver and fixer who I'd been working with, this wonderful guy, Stanislav, who I'd been with really for the past few weeks, certainly since the start of the war and even a little bit before. And, and he knew all of these side roads and back roads to avoid the main highway, which had traffic that was backed up in some cases for literally days. Uh, some colleagues from the New York Times ended up stopping on the road because they couldn't make it all the way to Lviv and slept in a village kindergarten. They, they wrote a really nice piece about it and actually featured on an episode of, of The Daily, which I recommend. But I got some combination of lucky both with the traffic and with the driver. And we were able to make the drive in one day, not from Kiev itself. I started out first leaving Kiev and driving south, um, at least at the time when I was there five days ago, though I think this still holds the Southern Highway was 
the best, if not only, route in and out of the city. We can talk a bit about this um, to the extent you know I have a sense of the kind of military um, lay of the land or, or state of play, and where Russian forces are and what territory they can they control and so on. But certainly the north and northwestern and, and now increasingly eastern directions of Kiev are where Russian troops are trying to enter the capital, have been trying for days, if not weeks at this point, getting stuck, but there's really intense fighting going on. And, and so all of those directions are essentially impassable. So the way in and out of the capital really is south. So I set off at the end of a day reporting, drove south through various checkpoints. It takes a bit of time to get out of Kiev these days and ended up in a town called um, Bielitsirkwa, which is maybe two hours or so, at least it took us about two hours to get to get there. But at least that was a staging point far enough outside of Kiev that we could wake up the next morning at 7 a.m. and t- get in the car and, and, and drive in one day and make it all the way to Lviv, which is almost at the Polish border in the, in the far western edge of the country. What went into your decision to leave Kiev? A few things. The increasing suggestion, if not demands of my editors um, at The New Yorker who were, were getting nervous about the situation there and me being there. But that was also combined with the fact that I had a magazine story to write and I had enough material, I thought, to do so and, and wanted to do so fast. This was a case where I thought continuing to gather material is always good and the story continues. And I, even though I've now left Ukraine there was a piece to be written, I thought, and so did my editors about the opening days of the war. And so, you know, no matter how fast I could write and that could be edited, that still needed some time to be prepared. And so continuing to be in Kiev when the task had switched from reporting to writing didn't make a lot of sense because Kiev, it's a place you can continue to work. Lots of colleagues still work there, but it's not necessarily the easiest or most conducive place to calmly writing for several days, which is what I needed to do. So with some insistent prodding of my editors, but I ultimately agreed with them, decided that there was no reason for me to still be in in Kiev. I had what I needed, or at least what I was going to get for this article. And it made sense to slowly move my way toward the border. There was also a, a journalistic reason for ending up in Lviv and that some of the people I had met at the very beginning of my reporting, in fact, really before the war, um, I was in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine in the days before this latest invasion started on February 24th. The Donbass is the site of where Russia's earlier war in Ukraine erupted and in fact uh, continued. It was a war that never really went away. Um, and, And many people, myself included, thought that if and when this new war starts, that it would be most logical or likely that it would begin there. So that's why I positioned myself in, in Donbass and visited some of the frontline towns. Frontline as in the line of contact, as it's called, from, from the old war that started in 2014. And visiting those towns met with people who had lived through one war with Russia and were bracing for another. And some of those people, I found out in the kind of crazed early days of the war when there was this mass internal and external migration, millions of people moving all over the country and many onward into Europe. But some of the people I had met in some of these frontline towns in the Donbass had ended up themselves in Lviv. And so that was also a final 
argument to myself that I could go to Lviv, a relatively safe, quiet place, hole up in a hotel room, write this piece, and also see these people again who I had seen in entirely different circumstances just two weeks before. So the piece that you went to write, I think, came out on the internet yesterday. Uh, We're talking on Sunday, the 13th of March. And it's one in a string of pieces that you have published about this conflict going back maybe two months. Tell me about the conversations you had with people during that will he, won't he lead up where there was this like armchair quarterbacking about what was going to happen. When I got to Ukraine in middle of February, so that's about two weeks before invasion actually took place, people were definitely freaked out. There was People were not wholeheartedly dismissing or kind of poo-pooing the idea of invasion. But a lot of them, and this is, gets tough because you know, as, as many Ukrainians as I spoke to in those weeks, as many opinions as I heard, so I can't really describe them all in one voice, but few and far between were the people who were absolutely adamant that we are on the eve of an imminent, large-scale, massive land invasion that's coming any day now. There were people like that, but again, because of the utter impossibility in that at that moment to imagine how that could happen, it was difficult for a lot of people, myself and a lot of people I met in Kiev those days. They certainly weren't no under no illusion about Putin's intentions or aims vis-a-vis Ukraine. It was clear that Putin has had this years-long or decades-long project of not really believing in the fundamental legitimacy or even existence of Ukrainian statehood, this idea that Ukraine isn't a real country. Most Ukrainians understood some version of that fairly well, and they didn't have any illusions about the way Putin saw their country. But not everyone was convinced that that was going to lead to a massive land invasion with aerial bombings and tanks streaming across the border any day. But as time wore on, even over the course of those two weeks, say from like February 10th to February 24th, when the invasion happened, Attitudes started to shift. My own attitudes started to shift, but also the people I was talking to as the prospect and likelihood of war started to seem more real, especially there was this moment, I guess about a week before the war actually happened, when Jake Sullivan and and I guess even President Biden came out the strongest way they had, at least at that point, and said, essentially, Putin's made the decision, war is going to happen in the next 48 hours. It was a weekend. It, it didn't happen over that weekend, but that was a moment when I saw a lot of people suddenly realize, oh shit, like this this really could happen and in fact maybe is happening. A lot of people left Kiev in those days, even before the war broke out, as it became clear that it really could happen. And there was a lot of confusion and frustration, which I think continues even now, three weeks into the war, but about why the West and specifically the US isn't doing more. I remember the weekend of that following that Sullivan announcement where he said in really adamant terms, like we think or in fact no, Putin has given the order to invade and it's gonna happen any day now. And then the weekend happened and Ukrainians are like, well what okay, thanks for the warning, but like what are you doing about it? Like you're just 
as one advisor to Zelensky said to me after that weekend, like, is this an action movie? Like you just like made this announcement and got out the popcorn to, and sat to see what would happen. Like where's like the urgency of action to follow the urgency of messaging. So there was some confusion about that, but also looming dread that this was for real, that, that this scenario that seemed far-fetched and impossible, even for many Ukrainians really was starting to congeal into place and look like the most likely outcome. You talked about talking to officials within the Zelensky administration. How does one get in touch with the leadership of a country at war and sort of what are the stakes of your contact with people in that circle? Well, like I said, I showed up two weeks or so before the war started. So this was still in a time when Kiev was functioning like a normal city. Everything was open, was businesses as usual, including in government. Of course, not as usual in the sense that people were trying to avert or prepare for an invasion, but you know they were going to work at the presidential administration. You could go see them. I benefited, I guess, from the fact that I wrote a profile of Zelensky for The New Yorker in 2019, in his first months in office when he was still a new president. He has this extraordinary story that maybe most people listening are familiar with, at least vaguely, that he was an actor and head of the country's most popular entertainment troupe. And the last project that he spearheaded before running and being elected for president was this long-running and very popular television show in which he played this unlikely everyman, a school teacher who is unexpectedly elected president and then has to uh, run the country. And he sort of turned the mythology surrounding this character in this TV show into a presidential campaign that then thrust him in a question of life imitating art into the actual job of Ukrainian president. So I went to Ukraine and wrote a profile of, of him and, and his unlikely rise and what it was like for him and the people around him. He took a lot of people from this comedy troupe into the administration with him to actually be put in charge of running a country. And very quickly after being put in charge of running Ukraine, Zelensky ran into Trump. Zelensky ended up at the center of the first Trump impeachment when Trump tried to put pressure on Zelensky to investigate Hunter Biden in order to get access to arms deals and uh, military aid, rather, that the United States had been offering to Ukraine in a way that, strange way that all these stories are, are coming together. Some of the same anti-tank missiles that Ukraine is now using um, with some real success against uh, Russian forces that have invaded the country. So all these stories kind of bizarrely have, have combined, but I was in Ukraine for several months uh, over the course of the summer and fall of, of 2019. So I had a lot of experience and a lot of contacts that I was able to call on a couple years later. But also, especially in this period right before the invasion, Ukrainian officials really saw the West and and the US specifically as a key player here. There was a lot of messaging directed at the US. If you recall, there was this period in February where Zelensky seemed visibly frustrated with Biden because Biden was talking about how the invasion is imminent, it's imminent, Russians are going to attack. And Zelensky thought, on the one hand, that was causing unnecessary panic. I mean, it turns out that that was like the correct analysis. But but going back to what I said a minute ago about frustration, it seemed like Zelensky thought 
that Biden was creating a sense of panic in the country, investors were leaving, the economy was taking a hit, and the US wasn't necessarily doing anything to shore up Ukraine militarily, so it wasn't really doing much good. But there was an interest in, in, in trying to both understand US messaging and to get a message across to the US. So some combination of existing contacts and a desire to actually engage in a conversation, if you know, if even a proxy one with the US establishment, I think aided me. Um, I think that in that period, Ukrainian officials, like politicians in the US say, use the press to, to um, get a message across both to publics and to politicians. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Six p.m. Book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex. Terms apply. As the rare person who has spent time with Zelensky. Is there anything from that period when you profiled him that you've been reflecting on as he is now a internationally uh, famous wartime leader? Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it turns out, and I don't want to make light of neither the situation, which is unambiguously horrible, or, or Zelensky's talents, but it, it turns out that being an actor and showrunner who has a really deft sensitive sense for the national psyche turns out to be a really powerful tool when your country ends up being invaded. He's really, in a way, emerged as the man for the job in a way that I don't think anyone expected. And I think he's quite successfully used his own force of personality and moral force to shame the West into going much further than perhaps Western leaders initially thought they would in terms of confronting Russia, whether through sanctions or arms supplies or other measures. Zelensky would like more. Zelensky would like NATO to institute a no-fly zone, for example, over Ukraine. But I think he's already gotten a lot out of the combination of having this incredibly charismatic and forceful moral voice, but also because the military has held the Russian army at bay. It's, It's given Zelensky the space to make these arguments. And to day after day, make these appeals that I think are hard for Western leaders to ignore. But at home, to answer your, your, to come back really to to your question and how I wanted to answer it at, at the beginning, that he just has this ability to communicate in a intelligible and appealing way to Ukrainians. That's what he did on his television show, Servant of the People, where he played this unlikely president, a role that in some ways catapulted him to the real presidency. And he's doing it again now. He records these remarkable videos from his office, and not just from his office. Some of them he's walking around outside, which in and of itself is just this extraordinary document, given the fact that we know that Putin is out to capture or kill him. And so Zelensky was really a hunted man. There there was talk of Chechen fighters roaming Kiev looking for him. 
Wagner mercenaries, you know, who people who previously fought in Syria and elsewhere, this private military company, uh, were on the prowl looking for him. And there were missiles raining down on Kiev. And just a video of Zelensky outside talking about, isn't this a beautiful spring day in Kiev, was already this just extraordinarily ballsy and really powerful and persuasive act. And he's done that over and over again. He's really used these video blogs, I guess you'd call them, as a way of demonstrating his own bravery and perseverance. And I think that those are traits that he's really telegraphed to Ukraine writ large, that if they see their president behaving in such a way that that they can find those same qualities within themselves, or rather see that they're not alone uh, displaying those qualities. You know, what's really interesting and powerful about Zelensky, and maybe is one of the things that has driven Putin crazy, is that Zelensky grew up in eastern Ukraine. He comes from a Russian-speaking Jewish family. His native language or the language he spoke at home growing up was Russian. And, and, and he's this extraordinarily gifted communicator in Russian. And in fact, at various points, including at the very beginning of the war in a, in a speech that I found really powerful, Zelensky made an appeal in Russian to Russians and spoke in a really, I thought, convincing, powerful, emotive way about this war and what it meant, not just for Ukraine, but for Russia, and and, and kind of went over the head of Putin talking in Russian to Russian citizens. What's, though, kind of of limited utility in all of this, or or rather, if, if only that was decisive, this idea that Zelensky, this great communicator, people who are comparing him to Churchill and his ability to tap into the national and even in some way international psyche... And I think really is winning the information war, Zelensky and and Ukraine writ large. But alas, what does that really mean for the the real war? The whole reason we're in this situation and this war started is that Putin is in his own reality here, it turns out, or, or Putin is kind of playing a game that none of us or few fully understood until it was properly revealed to us in all of its horror. And so I'm just not sure that there's much that can convince Putin to stop rather than continue to escalate. And certainly not the fact that he's less popular and less charismatic a communicator. Like a lot of the justification for why there wouldn't be a war was that the war would actually be unstrategic, would be uh, a bad idea. And now that that sort of idea has been breached by reality, you know, thinking as a as a reporter who's trying to explain what's going on, how do you write about that kind of mindset that Putin embodies? And I guess also, you know, when you talk to people in Ukraine, how are they perceiving that disconnect? So I don't think that Putin has gone insane and I don't think he's behaving irrationally. I think that he just has a different understanding, certainly of his own role in Russian history. I think that's that's the danger of being in power for 22 years. I think he has entered a kind of late stage messianic phase where he's thinking about himself as this grand historical figure rather than a politician in, in the here and now. How you re- report about that is 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 trickier because I've tried to avoid over ten years and not always succeeded 
being in the business of Putinology and, and, and certainly like armchair Putin psychology. Unfortunately, that's a requirement of the job. If you write about Russia, um, you can't you can't avoid it entirely because so much, especially in the realm of geopolitics, like does flow through the brain of one man. It's just it's it's unavoidable. So you really do need to try and understand what he's thinking, and, and that's just a really difficult task because I don't think he's so voluble, even with his inner circle, about you know what he's thinking, let alone feeling about certain issues. But if you talk to Ukrainians, as I've did extensively every day over the last month, from Ukrainians you hear a mixture of disbelief in the sense that what's so obvious to them, first and foremost, the establishment of a really strong, coherent Ukrainian national identity. Like, how did Putin not see that? How did he not understand that even Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine in the East and in the South wouldn't automatically welcome Russian forces or want to join Russia, that, that language was not actually determinative and even historical or familial ties were also not going to be determinative. And, and how could he have not understood that? Because it's so obvious to Ukrainians. And it's so obvious, I think, if you spend a lot of time in Ukraine, it was obvious to me, um, this idea that Russia wouldn't have to engage in a full occupation, that it could topple Zelensky, install its own leaders, and then essentially leave, which seems to have been the initial plan. A former defense minister referred to it as a raid, like they wanted to just mount this quick raid, get rid of Zelensky, destroy a bit of military infrastructure, and leave in place a new pro-Russian government. I mean, that was crazy. That was never going to work. And it was so obvious to Ukrainians that it was never going to work. Many of them couldn't quite fathom the invasion because it just the political aims just didn't make any sense to them. So clearly didn't make sense to them. And since the invasion happened, that disbelief has, has turned into just absolute white hot rage broadly they see russia and in, in many ways russians as as their enemies and i'm i'm not sure that was true that strain was definitely present among many people and in many portions of society in ukraine post 2014 but it wasn't universal it wasn't on the tip of everyone's tongue and, and now it is i think just about anywhere you go in ukraine that ukrainian identity has been extraordinarily solidified. It's really cohered. And one of the things it's cohered around is a abiding anger and hatred of Russia. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the, the nuts and bolts of reporting. Is this your first experience reporting in a conflict zone? No, I am a two-time accidental unwitting conflict reporter both of the in both times it was uh, as a result of russia invading um ukraine i covered the war in donbass in 2014 and a little bit into 2015 i mean i wasn't there all the time there were friends and colleagues who were much more committed to that story over the duration than i was so i don't want to kind of exaggerate my own in involvement there but but i certainly was on the ground in the Donbass over the course of that summer, not really knowing what I was doing and, and what was going on. I mean, that was a pretty universal, I think, feeling at the time. And what's funny, I remember and have some really strong memories of riding around Donbass, trying to cover that war with some of the same friends, really, who I linked up with in Ukraine 
these weeks and, and drove around the country trying to cover this war too. So for a reluctant conflict journalist, what do you do when a war breaks out around you? I guess I try and use what I think are my skills and abilities to the extent I, I, you know, I have them as a reporter. It's language first and foremost, ability to communicate with people like just on the street and ability to just like kind of move around freely and, and, and end up having experiences and, and be able to kind of get a, get a feel for them and, and, and the people in a way that I hope is sort of tactile and intimate. The strategy I settled on for this long story that I, I just published in the New Yorker was essentially to write about what does it look like when, especially in the case of Kiev, a city that I have been to many, many times over the years and come to really love over the years, like a totally recognizable, vibrant European capital. What, what happens when in the span of a few days, war comes to your doorstep? So my, my strategy, to the extent I have one, though, in situations like this, you can't really have a strategic plan. You sort of have to do every day what seems possible and what seems safe. Is the road to that particular place open? Is it safe? What about the checkpoints? Where's the fighting? Can you reach the people there who you want to go see? So there's just a lot of aspects of reporting that kind of decide your reporting plan for you. Um, and that's probably good, right? It, in a way is clarifying. But in all the places that I visited first in Donbass in the east, where I was on the eve of the war and where I actually was when, when the war broke out. I was in the city of Kramatorsk in eastern Ukraine when the first bombs started to fall, and, and including in Kramatorsk at um, a military command post and airfield in town, and then moving on to Kiev, where I spent a week, and then finally in Lviv in the west. I wanted to talk to, to people for, for you know lack of a better word, who were in various ways experiencing war in this shocking, unexpected way. I wanted, I wanted to capture that sense of absurdity, of, of disbelief, of shock, of, of people who I hope I could make legible and understandable to the reader in this way that were sort of just like us, right? There's nothing different about these people. These are people who lived normal, understandable, legible lives to us, people who got up in the morning and thought about, you know, getting their kids to school before going to work, who suddenly found themselves in, in the middle of a war, whether as, for example, people who volunteered for these territorial defense units, these are volunteer military detachments that uh, were created by the government to augment the army, people with very little training or previous experience were put in charge of, of patrolling neighborhoods or patrolling checkpoints of, of potentially, you know, holding off or trying to uh, keep out the Russian invasion force if and when it comes to cities, in this case, Kiev. So people who were working in restaurants or uh, one guy I met was working in like made like machines, uh, equipment for like the agricultural sector and, and had joined territorial defense. I also wanted to talk to people, of course, who experienced, you know, loss and, and horror and, and violence, people who were made internal refugees, people who rose to the occasion in different ways as volunteers in Kiev went to see the owner of a cafe, a really like lovely, nicely designed, cool cafe in the center of Kiev. And he had switched his operations to churning out 10,000 meals a day 
for these territorial defense units, medics, and, and other people in Kiev. And so the, the themes, like I said, one was sort of capturing what happens when that switch gets flipped really fast and a society suddenly finds itself at war and people have to respond in different ways. But but the second part of that is the way that Ukrainians responded, I found really captivating and, and, and really important, uh, the degree to which people displayed a real sense of solidarity and purpose to the extent to which society was galvanized by this invasion. And they, and they did the exact opposite thing to what Putin expected. Putin expected not only Zelensky to get freaked out and, and bail and you know disappear at the first Russian tank, but also expected Ukrainian society to collapse. I don't think Putin really believed or understood there was such a thing as Ukrainian society. He didn't think there were people would believe in the idea or did believe in the idea of a Ukrainian state and would want to protect it. But they really do. And, and they've really displayed you know, extraordinary bravery and commitment in, in doing so. And I also wanted to, to capture that aspect of my reporting. We've had like uh, like war reporters on this show, people who are uh, uh, seek out wars and cover them. And that does not seem to be your journalistic style. So what what is a reporter like you who's you know been covering Russia uh, for many years? What is your strategy for lack of a better word? You know what I'm less experienced in or less maybe frankly you know interested in, have less stomach for is sort of going to the heart of where the military action is is happening, which which is super important and necessary work i i you know i don't want to claim to have any kind of stolen valor here as a war reporter because there are people in ukraine right now who are doing like extraordinary insane brave work to tell us what it's like being at the epicenter of a russian bombing campaign there was this piece recently in the wall street journal by yaroslav trofimov about kharkiv this city in northeast Ukraine that has just been like carpet bombed into oblivion. This really historic major city in eastern Ukraine, like was first hit with cruise missiles and, and carpet bombing. And I mean, just like the center of it looks like Stalingrad. And Yaroslav went there in the wake of this bombing campaign and, and, and had a look at the city and talked to people. And it's just a, like an insane piece of reporting and, and a really like just unthinkable, especially for people who know that part of the world and have been to Kharkiv, this just really historic, wonderful, vibrant town to just see it leveled like that and, and with just such wanton death and destruction. Um, I was uh, amazed and, and, and horrified by that story. Also reading the work of my friend Mike Schwartz for the New York Times, who's been most recently in southern Russia, specifically in and around the town of Mykolaiv which has borne the brunt of some Russian, really heavy Russian bombing and rocket and artillery attacks in recent days and, and where there are really fierce battles between Ukrainian army and Russian forces happening on the outskirts of town. And, and sort of Mike's been there to see that, like watching you know tank battles in the 21st century, pretty like also unthinkable and extraordinary. And, and his work has been just super terrifying and fascinating to follow. And so there are people, thank God, like that out there doing that work. And, and in a way, I mean, this, I'm kind of letting myself off the hook, but like that gives me a little bit of space to do a different kind of work. But like the truth be told, I do that different kind of work because it's the only kind I frankly have the stomach or, 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 or courage for. 
I'm not at all a conflict reporter. I, I don't like it, though I guess I don't know who, who would like being in these situations. But I mean, that's this is the story, right? Like if you cover this part of the world, if the war in 2014 felt like the tectonic plates of history were shifting, now they're just like erupting, crashing. I mean, this is like the, you know, the asteroid impact event for this part of the world with effects that will last, you know, similarly long going forward. I'm curious about what the on the ground reality of what's happening there is being communicated to people who are there and what issues of sort of rumors, unfact-checkable things. Uh, there's Chechen assassins driving around looking for Zelensky. How does all this stuff look when you're actually there? I mean, the, the fog of war is, is absolutely real. And I think it's all the more real in the age of TikTok and, and social media because there's just so much more information out there and, and you never know exactly what you're seeing, especially in something like war. Like, for example, Russian troops have entered a town, but, but do they hold the town? You know, did they drive through the town? Who actually controls an area? There's this whole like sub genre of the informational ecosystem surrounding the war of these maps, like different institutes both Ukrainian and Western published these maps that show the arrangement of forces and sort of who's where and who's moving where, but it's unclear, you know, what this, these different shaded territories mean and the arrows about who's on the move. Like Russian troops have entered a place, like I said, but, you know, do they, can you say that they fairly actually control it? It's very hard to make sense of that. And another reason, going back to a previous question, why I kind of didn't try for the purposes of my reporting, because I just didn't think that I would ever be able to make sense of that in a way that like I could be convinced of, let alone get past the legendary New Yorker fact checkers. Like that's just, that's just a kind of, it seemed to me like an unknowable realm of the war. And, you know, because social media, because like viral videos, whether it's of like Russian, you know, armor getting destroyed or Zelensky giving his speeches is such a like powerful component of the war. Like the information war is a huge part of the overall war. It just makes it that much harder to know what it is you're you're seeing because these videos that are being shared, they're showing like real events. I don't think we're seeing like staged footage, but at the same time, you know, you, you see how quickly rumor starts to spread. You know, people in Kiev, for example, are on their phones. One of the like strange and unexpected aspects of this war is the degree to which Russia did not take down communications like first that was kind of the thing everyone was waiting for in fact i remember actually the night when the war began it it started at about 5 a.m ukraine time and earlier that night like around midnight i got some messages from people saying tonight's the night like the rumor mill kicked into overdrive in a new way that it hadn't actually before it like this is it began to feel like really really real when the text messages were getting passed around with a different kind of urgency saying, you know, it starts tonight in the middle of the night. And, you know, the first thing I did was to call my editors and say, okay, it seems like it's really happening. Like, I presume that within hours, I will lose all communication. And so we need to come up with a plan for like, what's going to happen when like, you're not gonna be able to reach me for days, like, here's what I'm going to do. And here's how I'm going to like, eventually find a way to be in touch. And none of that happened. Like the Russians have 
really barely touched the communications element. Like phones still work, the power is still on. And so people in Kiev are like still on their phones all the time or even more, like looking at telegram channels, looking at Twitter, sharing, you know, videos of the war and, and what's happening, you know, where Ukrainian forces have like blown up a column of Russian armor or or vice versa or whatever. And all of that stuff's like super interesting just because you, we've rarely gotten to see war documented in that way. Like, you know, there's like GoPro videos of like Ukrainian teams like blowing up Russian tanks with anti-tank missiles. Like you just, that's not an experience that most people have been able to like vicariously participate in or see before. But it's it's just really hard to make sense of like, okay, so what does that mean? Like what, what, what does that say about the trajectory of the conflict? Like it becomes really hard to say. What are the theories about why the communication networks haven't been knocked offline? Are Russian troops using like cell towers to communicate with each other and so they don't want to turn them off? Yes, um, that, that turns out to be true. There's been some intercepts of Russian troops communicating on Ukrainian cell phone towers. There's been including some conversations that have leaked that the Ukrainians have been sort of happy to leak for propaganda purposes of like one Russian commander calling another and like reporting the death of a high ranking Russian military officer who was killed like in battle with Ukrainians, but they're like reporting that news on cell phones on Ukrainian towers, pretty remarkable. So I think one reason is that their own comms rely on cell towers, so they can't take it down fully. And another reason, these are all kind of interconnected, which is that the, the plan as initially conceived and executed in early days was just to like drive into Kiev, topple Zelensky, and like, and, and that's it. And like, you know, like very little fighting. Uh, and it, not a, certainly not a protracted, bloody war that would go on for three weeks. So it's possible they felt like they didn't need to pull the plug. And then, and once they didn't pull the plug, then, you know, once the war begins, right, like all bets are off, then you're just in a really messy, unpredictable situation where it's perhaps hard to like go back and reassess or like redo your like fundamental strategy. How do you cut up your reporting knowing that the entire situation could change in a 24 hour period? And we've already seen it change dramatically in 24 hour periods. How do you fit your reporting into something like a print publishing and fact checking cycle? And additionally, now that you have this one out, what's next? Where do you go from here? Without being too specific, I don't, I don't think we have any FSB listeners, but uh, don't give away your exact location. <laughs> well, like how I did this piece, the, the answer really is just speed. I've never written anything like this for the New Yorker, uh, and, and and you know, if all goes according to plan, may, may not do so uh, again. I don't think this is the ideal process for anyone, but. I essentially had no story, like literally no words on Sunday. Sunday is when I got to Lviv and first sat down to write and still was doing a bit of reporting. Like I said, still had to go meet some people in the city, but like had no story, no words on Sunday. And that Friday, we closed a piece of, I guess, about 7,000 words. So it was an extraordinarily frenetic and compact process. Like I wrote probably even more like 9,000 words in two or three days, gave it in chunks, like as I went, not even once a day, but like three times a day, I would send like, I wrote a new 1500 words, 2000 words, and I'd send them to my editor, 
Rob Fisher, who's not just extraordinarily talented and sort of gifted at, at structuring and helping to craft a story, but just patient and, and supportive throughout. And he was happy to receive these disparate chunks of material as I went, edit them, and then try and fit them together. And that was really the only way to do it, because if I you know, filed 9,000 words on Wednesday, it would just be too late. So the editorial process kind of started even before there was a piece, and the fact checkers also got involved, and, and they were super, super helpful, sort of went above and beyond what normally I would ever think to ask of a checker. Like I, I just didn't have the time to do pretty fundamental stuff in the piece. Like, you know, I could just leave these blocks, like whole TK blocks of like, you know, TK explain significance of Zelensky's election, you know, like <laughs> TK explain the actual like politics of language in Ukraine. I was just like so consumed with essentially getting onto the page what I had in my notebook that I like, didn't have time as I was going to do these bigger picture, but necessary analytical and explanatory bits. And so Rob, uh, the checkers, even David Remnick, like all got involved and, and helped me fill in those parts and, and gave me some of the like raw data that I needed to like make my point or even crafted some language that I went back and, and tweaked. But it was really a team effort, like however cliche that sounds, but like it couldn't have been any other way to produce and edit and fact check and close a magazine story of that length in five days. What I want to do next is, is, is take a bit of a break. Like I said at the beginning, uh, you know, I've just left Ukraine yesterday. I'm in Warsaw now. Uh, no, no great secrets there, uh, but I'm heading out already uh, later tonight, in fact, and want to take, I don't know, a week, a week and a half. Let's see what's happening in Ukraine break. And then when I go back, and I'm certain that I will go back, I think I want to be a bit more or a lot more targeted. This piece I just wrote, and, and I hope it's like appropriate to the moment that it, it sort of fits the spirit of what the first days of the war were like. But it's really, I don't want to call it exactly a travelogue, but it's like very much me going around and having experiences and, and, and just sort of seeing what happens as I move through the country in the early days of the war and talk to people about their own experiences in the early days of the war. And when I go back, I think I want to find a story. I, I don't know what that will be yet, but I, I think I want to go in to the extent possible with more of a kind of reporting target, more of an idea of this is the narrative I want to write. So I'm going to go to this place and talk to these people because I want to kind of capture this coherent story um, the sort of more, you know, chaotic, random approach was, I think, good for the chaotic and random early days of the war. But going next time, I think I want to, you know, find a way to narrow my frame a little bit. I look forward to reading that. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do this interview. I know uh, a couple hours of your life is extremely precious right now. So I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. And that was the long form podcast. Thanks very much to Josh Yaffa for making the time to do this. Uh, thanks to our editor, Jackie Sajiko, our intern, Noel Matir. I can't forget my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. We'll be back next week.
When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.